And what I was going to do was have you compare the ijazah that was issued over the same material to me to the ijazah that was issued over the same exact material to the woman. Now you have to take my word for it. We were in the same halaqa, we were tested over the same matter, and there there is no darajat, you either pass or fail, and the majority fail. You know, out of 30, maybe three will get ijazas, sometimes no one will get an ijazah. And with all due respect, and that's why I'm not going to name the shiuch, with all due respect to the shiuch who did give me the ijazas, I mean, I've, I'm, I, you always respect your teachers and honor them, but I wanted to show you the, the subtle discrimination that has crept into our time. In my ijazah, it says something to this effect. I have tested Fulan ibn Fulan in such and such matter. I have asked him in such and such matter. And he has proven his competence in such and such matter. Consequently, I certify that he can do such and such in such and such matter. According to his knowledge, wassalam. That's it. The woman, I have tested Fulan, the woman, in such and such manner. I have asked her in such and such manner. She has answered in such and such manner. I certify to her that I certify that she is competent in such and such matter. <laughs> how do how do I certify? And I authorize her to narrate and teach Bima Allahu min al fahmi. To the limit of what Allah has given to her in understanding. That's the variation. Now the interesting thing. In, during the years that we had these ijazas, I asked three women who got the ijazas. Is there a difference between my ijazah? Of course, you know, the, the, the way it works is you have a sheikh and the sheikh starts out with 30, 40, 50 students and issues only three or four ijazas at the end. Now, so it's, it's quite a statement to, to the sheikh, in, you know, I, you always respect your teachers, I, I really do believe that, that he, I, frequently many of the sheikhs would never consider giving an ijazah to a woman. But at least those sheikhs had the, the, uh, the, um, the sense to be fair. And so I asked, is there any difference between your ijazah and mine? And all three said no. The said no. All of them said no. And they read them? He read them. And they read yours? He read mine. We exchanged ijazahs. It's like getting your, you know, sort of like kids when they get their report card. <laughs> but, you know, it's, you, you know that the sheikh is going to issue ijazahs and, and, uh, and there is a lot of talk about who is going to get it and so on and then once you get it you, you sort of exchange and you sit there and you talk about it. of course we don't scream and jump up and down and go party and celebrate we sort of say alhamdulillah salamu salamu alaykum and then go on <laughs> <laughs> then we go home and then once we go home we start yelling yeah, yeah. 
I did it. This person said I can't do it. I showed him. <laughs> Throughout my, I mean, at the time, which time? Which ijazah? Well, like, at what age do you begin to get the First ijazah I was issued, you mean? I got my first ijazah at 14. From sheikhs. Bint, don't ask any more questions about me. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have even brought the issue of my ijazah and all of that if I didn't want to give that example. Um, they're irrelevant. And a person proves him or herself with their knowledge, with their certificates. It's not about you. Were you with, how many other women were you studying with when you would study in these halakas? Frequently there were women in the halakas? No. Um, the most, um, I mean, the more, there were two types of shaykhs. I mean, there were several types of shaykhs, of course. Some that would never allow a woman, a woman period. But there were also shaykhs that would never allow uh, a non-Egyptian. I mean, there were also shaykhs that were just uh, an Indian or, or a Sudanese or something. By definition, they're stupid and would never allow them. Um, but I can't say they were the majority. I mean, most of most sheikhs would did not have racial biases or something like that. The majority of them, most sheikhs would not allow women. I would say, uh, some sheikhs would allow women, and in, and and be conscious about it. In other words, they they make it a point to say we allow women, and they would always have them sit like, like on this side and this side. So they have to sit in the front. Some sheikhs were just too old to care. Uh, they can't tell the difference between a man and a woman. If, if, uh, and you know, they, they would call us like a uh, woman and a man, it didn't matter. And if, even if, I think if, uh, yeah, if anything happened, they, they, they wouldn't notice anything. Some sheikhs would insist that the woman sit in the back. Um, so how did the Jewish convention before God here uh, knowledge and how did they learn and also uh, which choice like the one the case that we just heard and how did they get their uh, their knowledge I and mean, did they go to these uh, uh, sheikhs and learn from them or did there, there were there were schools of fiqh all of these women for the most part are issued their ijazas in the context of a school of fiqh so they were like school in schools yeah some of them are issued outside the school in other words they just go study with a sheikh and the sheikh issues them an ijazah but the, the method of establishing the authenticity of a sheikh, a alim, is by a process of accumulation of ijazas. So someone, for example, who does not have any ijazas and comes and tries to teach like nowadays, people would laugh at him. Frankly, I wish these days would come back because I, I, when I listen to people te teaching Islam, it is so laughable that I wish they would just shut up. And and I see, start see the merit of the ijazah system. But the more ijazahs you receive, the more you were able to teach. So, um, and it depends also on who gave you the ijazah. I mean, if you received an ijazah, for example, from Ibn Hajar al-Haytami, this one ijazah could be enough, and that's it, because very famous jurist. Or if you received an ijazah, if you were uh, fa by Imam al-Haramain uh, al-Juwaini, or in the Shi'a tradition by Suyuti himself, who wrote the Mabsut, then that's it. But if you received it from um, uh, someone like Ibn Muflih, 
it's not, you know, then you need several other ijazas to qualify and so on. So there was a system to it. It wasn't haphazard. Another question I had was, a lot of jurists you mentioned, they, it seemed like they had like a family history of being jurists or their husband. It's like a family history of being doctors and family history of well, being lawyers. in the normal sort of structure had the opportunity to learn and get Well, I thought that I tried to give you an example of that. There was one woman, if you recall, and I selected every single example for a point. Now, you might have picked up the point or missed it, but... One of the examples I chose was exactly that. A woman that I said grew up in, in, completely in a family that has nothing to do with jurists or knowledge or whatever, and entered into it, into the field. Now, I could give you, if, if you, if you wanted, to, wanted to be really bored, I could sit here and give you five other, six other examples of that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> she, she got into it by marrying a jurist, right? She got into by in the her case she got into into it by marrying a jurist. A lot of them would go would get into it by simply uh, going to a jurist and saying um, we want to join your halakha, and the jurist would say, well, uh, can you find an endowment? In other words, can you find a scholarship? Someone that would give you a scholarship. They would go around try to find some rich fellows, rich woman who would give them a scholarship that would take care of their residence, food and, and, and books. Because at that time you needed to buy your books. And as well as buying gifts to the sheikh. <laughs> and, well, they've got to make a living as well. And, well, actually, you know, what you give your sheikh are books. Uh, none of my, if, if uh, none of the sheikhs that I've studied was ever accepted money. Uh, they always accepted books. Um, and then if she is able to find a scholarship, she would join the halaqa if the sheikh accepts her, and this could be her way in. However, if she can't find a scholarship, there are several instances of uh, um, of women who just ha hung around the mosque and did some jobs and stuff like that. I mean, they're... I might, I might, to the end, give you an, an example of one of them. You seem puzzled, or not odd jobs? They hung around the mosque, meaning slept in the mosque, and worked in various things, like in an attar store, in a store of um, a chemist store, or worked uh, in delivering water and things like that. And this was the way, but these, these were the women who just couldn't get a scholarship. And y you have to remember that mosques, it, different, it, it depends on the age and the locality, of course, the time, uh, and, and who's in power. Some mosques would close their doors, but other mosques were a waqf, and where the poor, and basically the homeless, would sleep in the finat at night. And these women would sleep in the women's quarters. Uh, in the mosque, but it's not that they did odd jobs in the mosque. Uh, it's not like they, you know, clean the mosque and stuff like that. No. Okay, Bint al-Shah Tahma Saab al-Safawi. She was a alima, and the reason I bring her up, this woman who was from Iran, again, Persia, she died in 955 Hijri. What is very interesting about her is not that she wrote several books, but that 
several ulama wrote several books about her books. And she, her books were all in usul al-fiqh, and all of them wrote commentaries on her book on usul al-fiqh. Yeah. I told you this is going to be unusual. Now, this is one of my favorites. Her name is Hamida Ar-Ruwadashti. And Hamida Ar-Ruwadashti was from Asfahan. And she wrote a commentary on a very famous book called Al-Istibsar. It's a famous Shiite book. And her father, her, her name was Hamida. And her father used to say that she was so concerned with the science of narrators that he used to kid her or tease her. And he says, you know the ta at the end of your name, Hamida is ha, mim, ya, dal, and ita marbuta. In other words, the circle was two dots. And this is called ta'nis for feminine. And he, said, he would tell her, you know this ta at the end, that this that one is for, for, for the feminine, to indicate that you're a woman. But then the other is to indicate your obsession with the science of narrators. And you can't really uh, understand the joke unless you know the relation of the ta' and marbuta with the science of narrators. But the point is, is that these people also had a sense of humor. Okay. Now, listen to her and I'll tell you why she is one of my favorites. Not only because her father had a sense of humor and seems that she had a sense of humor. وَمِنْ غَرِيبْ مَا أُطَّفَقَ عَلَيْهِ أَنَّهَا تَزَوَّجَتْ لِرِضَى أُمِّهَا بِرَجُلٍ جَاهِلٍ أَحْمَقٍ And one of the strangest things about her, despite the fact that she was a great jurist, that she agreed to marry to please her mother, she agreed to marry an ignorant fool. <laughs> this, is, this is what this fellow is saying. And he was from one of these villages, and a, re a relative of, of hers. And I saw them, both of them, this is Xerox from a book, and I could not believe that she can spend one day with him, <laughs> because the man was so stupid. She wrote a book, but I would, I suspect, this is my suspicion, that she was sort of um, the one in control. Uh, because it seems that every time someone would narrate that they met her, it, it would be in, okay, this guy is an idiot, we know that. <laughs> but they say they met her in a, in a, uh, in a scientific context, in a context where they're, they're discussing knowledge. Doing this. My guess is probably making the coffee as he's only one. 
Anyway, she wrote a book, and her book is called Rijal Hamida, the Red of Hamida. And it, this is sort of an arrogant title, because he sort of gives the title. The, 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 this is like me writing a book and say, titling it The Woman of Khan. Uh, it, it's sort of the same type of, any one of you would look at it and say, what? <laughs> uh, now, so trying to imagine is the same type of problem. And she wrote the famous Hashiga on the, the Sussar, as I said. Where did she, She died in the fifth century. <laughs> Okay, this is just to note that this is a woman who received an ijazah certificate in the book of Tusi. Now, those of you, and, and it seems I've lost any hope that we, and here again, let me go become a bit rhetorical and a little bit entertaining. Um, this is what I mean when we have been cut off from our roots. None of us know the people I'm referring to. While you come to a typical American or a British, and okay, come, come to any, any British kid and say um, King Arthur and uh, what, what do you call his knights? The, 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 huh? On the round table. They know them. Sir Lancelot and all that, you know, Guinevere and all these stories. They've heard about Henry. They've heard about even several philosophers. Of, of their age, they study in college, they take Western civilization. They know from St. Augustine to, uh, 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 what's his name, this other great reformer? Um, Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas 2-2-2-2. Now, here, our equivalents are oblivious to us as Muslims. Because these are our equivalents, and we know diddly about them. So, Al-Tusi, who is one of these equivalents, who wrote a very famous book called Al-Mabsut, who I spent four years trying to acquire, and finally was able to acquire. This is for my own great pleasure. That she was issued a license to teach the book of Al-Tusi. This, if you were attached to your culture, you would at that point go, oh. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, exactly, wow. Okay. Then, um, a woman who is a bit later, she died in the year one, 1,256 Hijra. So she died about 200, 200 years ago. She is Fatima bint al-Amir As'ad al-Khalil. She is Syrian, and she occupied the most prestigious position in the University of Damascus, in Damascus, teaching the following, grammar and eloquence, grammar and eloquence, until she became extremely famous and her reputation spread to Iraq and Egypt. And by the time she reached the year 18, the Emir 
Ali Bek al-Asad proposed to her and she said no but you can marry my sister which she gratefully accepted which he gratefully accepted no she did all that before she was 18? yes she was opposed to by Al Amir Ali Bek Al Asad. Al Al Amir Ali Bek Al Asad. Yeah, he's an Amir, Prince, Damascus, the city, yeah. city of Damascus. Why did you say no? They like I don't know, and she and this guy doesn't even say if she marries after that. Fatima Ruwa Dashti again. She's from the Ruwa Dashti family. There is a Dashti family, which is a Shiite family, Persian and Arab. Um, well, I mean, the Arabs are the Persian dissidents, but anyway, it doesn't matter. But Ruwa Dashti is not to be confused with Dashti, as if you're going to meet either of them. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> She's from Asfahan. And Fatima was known as Fatima bint Hamida. Anything unusual about that? She's named after her mother, bint Hamida. Okay. Let's read what. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. Now listen to this. I'll read it in Arabic first, so uh, it will go on on record. وَإِنَّمَا نُصِبَتْ إِلَىٰ أُمِّهَا وَلَمْ تُنْسَبْ إِلَىٰ أَبِيهَا لَأَنَّهُ كَانَ جَاهِلًا غَيْرَ مَعْرُوفًا <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is too funny to be translated. <laughs> she was named the Bint of Hamida and not the Bint, and not, she was named after her mother, not after her father, because his fa her father was an ignorant nobody. <laughs> her mother was famous and her father was ignorant nobody, so they named her after her mother, Bint Hamida. <laughs> no, it's not a matter of no no. I am I am now want you to decide what's a no no. I am basically taking you throughout Islamic history, and I think I've done that from the 4th century up to the 14th century, and leaving it up to you to decide what is authentically Islamic and what is not. I'm not going to make that conclusion for you. You decide what is authentically Islamic and what is not. Okay, now, the boring part is nearly over. Nearly, nearly. I'm missing, where are, well, I'm missing this. Now, I like, hold on, so where did it go?
Give me a second. I'll find her. <laughs> I'll find her. I've been I've been living um, with these women for so long. Um, oh yeah, that does sound sort of strange. Uh, no, I I I don't I don't live with uh, the contemporaries because they're they're sort of idiotic to be quite frank. But where did it go? Hmm. Okay, let's see. Now I, yeah, okay. She is from Baghdad, so she has to be. And this is uh, for the people who are sort of like Arabic a little. Okay, now her name is Asma. Okay, this woman was um, issued ijazas. She is uh, she she is from the seventh century. She was born uh, in six hundred seventy-seven, and she is from Damascus, not Baghdad, and she is a Hanafiya. And she was issued 26 ijazas. Okay? And here's the interest part. Here's the interesting part. And those who know Arabic, pay attention. Those who don't know Arabic, take a rest. خَرَّجَ لَهَا الشِّهَابِ بِنْ أَلَّبُودِ مَشْيَخَ or مَشِيخَ مَاتَتْ قبل إكمالها والخيضر عن ثمانية عشر من شيوخها ثلاثين حديثا نمبر وان those who know Arabic is it مشيخة or مشيخة why مشيخة why مشيخة <laughs> okay, it is it is Mashiach. Mashiach, the difference is Shihab ibn al Labudi wanted to write a book. The difference between Mashiach, Mashiach is a position, academic position. Mashiach is, biogra- is a biography of a person. The Egyptians even of ancient times, used to sometimes pronounce Mashiach, Mashiach, anyway. But Egyptians always did that. So, Mashiach is the correct form. And anyway, that's not important. What is important is that Ashihab ibn al-Labudi wanted to write a book about this woman. And in this book, he wanted to trace all her teachers and their teachers and their teachers all the way to the time of the Sahaba. So in other words, there was at the time a system or a methodology of knowledge that believed that a person is the repository of centuries of learning. And if you really want to know what is a person, 
You sort of go back, 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 and then you discover all the information that was deposited in that person's mind. So Ash-Shahab ibn al-Nabudi wanted to write a book, a biographic book, in which he would trace her, her sheikhs, her origins, all the books she studied, their origins, all her certificates, and so on. But in order to do that, he needs her. She needs to be alive because she needs to sit with him and tell him. But she died before he was able to finish it. The interesting thing is, this half-done book, is, the manuscript, is in Damascus. He didn't complete it. Half of it exists. It's incomplete. It's unfinished. It's about two volumes. Now, the boring part is over. Now we get to the sort of more boring part. <laughs> now, we ask a question. The fact that they existed historically, I think by now cannot be denied. I mean, I think I have did tawatur on the matter. The fact, Tawatur means that accumulation of evidence. The fact that they existed doesn't mean our civilization was either great or not great. And I wish that as Muslims we stopped thinking in terms of affirming the worst or negating the worst of our religion every time we look at something. Okay? We do not study our civilization to prove Islam is great, and we do not study our civilization to prove Islam is not great. And if you do, then you don't believe in Islam. Because if you really believed that it is great, and that your civilization is great, you wouldn't need to tell people all the time it's great. It would, you would be confident that it would be apparent. But the fact that we subconsciously or consciously, are not confident in the greatness of our own religion and our own civilization is that we constantly want someone to tell us about how great it is, and if they don't, then add him to the list of the Mamnu'ah. <laughs> the blacklist. I didn't do this as a form of apologetic as a form of apologetics to prove how great women were in Islamic history. Don't get me wrong. I am not proving to you that women were not oppressed in Islamic history. And I am not proving to you that they were liberated in Islamic history. While what I am proving to you is the precedent in Islamic history of different forms of feminine, feminine femininity than the ones we are accustomed to today. That's all I'm doing. Again, no one should leave this lecture and say Khaled Abul Fad gave a lecture, a boring lecture, but a lecture about how Islam treated women throughout history and how great Islam was. If you do, then you haven't understood anything I've said tonight. To me, it is quite irrelevant whether Islam 
was great or not great because that is something that you believe in your heart. And if I believe it's great, I don't need to go around telling people it's great, it's great, it's great. In the same way that if I believe, um, if I'm self-confident, I won't every two minutes say, oh yes, and I'm by the way brilliant, and by the way, I've studied at Yale, and by the way, don't forget, I also have this degree. You know, eventually it gets stale, and it gets boring. I am inviting you to approach Islamic text with this methodology of discovering your roots, discovering authenticity. What is authentic and what is not authentic? Are we today the product of Islamic authenticity? Or are we the product of a colonial, neo-colonial mutation? That really has nothing to do with Islamic authenticity. Now, what time did we start? 6.30. 6.30. It's been two hours. Those of you who want to leave, feel free. Who needs a break? Okay, take a break. 15 minutes. Okay, how many people did we lose? Maybe about ten. No, no. Five. Good. Oh, this, these are the dinner people? Oh, okay. How many of you are going to be here tomorrow, by the way? Raise your hands high. Okay. Now, Let me get another idea. This time it's sort of be your turn. The number of men more or less equals the number of women tonight. Isn't that right? Well, the disparity is percentage-wise not that great. Why do you think that is? Did we lose more men than women? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the equal number of men and women came today, isn't mm -hmm. it? I know why the women came. I want to know why men came. Okay, why did why did why did you come? Because I had read a lot about Muslim and women and Islam, and it seems to be the most, not only controversial, but non-Muslims find it to be the most interesting topic to talk about. And so I thought I would come and see why everyone thinks it's such an interesting topic to talk about. Any other volunteers? I just came to learn more about the, um, the women in Islamic history, because that's what I was told the topic was. That's it? 
was kind of whatever you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's the well, was problem. <laughs> also, I think it's not necessarily the most popular topic. I mean, considering that 50% of the population is female, probably 50% of the lectures or talks are not devoted to, I mean, a lot of them are general and they apply to both, but um, it's not often a I think it's interesting that uh, a religion that said about liberating women should be should in in the twentieth in the twentieth century Christian era should find that there's a dichotomy and that there's a men and Islam and there's a women and Islam but not people people and Islam. Okay. Can you go get me the essays? Do you know where they are? Which essay was the one that you were ranting on? You, you were ranting, you went on ranting about how all this, um, about the contradictions. Yeah. Mm. Mm. There, there's, there was the ones I put on top are new essays. Okay. So don't get those mixed up. No, mm. oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, I confused something. Yeah. Yeah, I think yours I want to use tomorrow. But you, is that okay with you? Okay. Okay. Let's uh let's share an essay. This is an essay by an infamous troublemaker. Um who I didn't a I didn't ask her permission to read her essay, so I don't know if I should name her or not. <laughs> The infamous troublemaker. Um, what do you think? Just name her. Yeah. Um, name. <laughs> no, I'm mean. I like to be mean. She's Rashida. This this woman over there. The record will reflect. The record will reflect that I pointed to Rashida Khan. Okay. Khan. <laughs> I, I want to share with you this essay because I sort of I think it's um, it's um, um, beautiful in its honesty. Um, I have problems with this verse from Surah An-Nisa. As to those women of whose part you fear disloyalty and ill conduct, admonish them first next refuse to share their beds, and last beat them lightly. But if they return to obedience, seek not against them means of annoyance, so on and so forth. I have difficulty understanding the existence of this verse in the Qur'an, 
which is supposed to be a book of revelation espousing the ideals of equality, fairness, and dignity. And although I am sure much is lost in translation from Arabic to English, I assume most translations, at least, within the same general context of their original meanings. When I read about the verse, I see a social order which bothers me. One aspect of relations between husbands and wives is deemed similar to that of parent to child. If children are disobedient, then parents should talk to them to set them straight. And if this does not work, they may be punished, lightly. Parents impart their wisdom to their naive and inexperienced children. Although a respectable relationship, it is not on an equal footing. Parents do have the upper hand, and children are expected to obey. I am not able to draw such parallels to the relationship between of a husband and a wife. Husbands and wives are companions to one another. They support one another. And their stature in the relationship should be on equal ground. One should not be held answerable to the other. They are both only answerable to Allah. If I bring up this issue to most scholars, I am quickly reminded that the, that the verse says, lightly beat, like with a miswak. And I'm told this simply doesn't hurt. Well, that's not the point. <laughs> I am bothered by what this light beating represents. For one, there is great potential for husbands to misuse this verse by physically abusing their wives under the guise of Islam. And two, I cannot accept the social hierarchy inherent in such a concept. Many scholars accept the verse in its most prevalent translation, the one noted above. How is it that I can question the validity of this verse without questioning the validity of the Qur'an? If the Arabic verse is assumed to be authentic, then the translation or context of the verse must not be on point. The only translation of the Qur'an I have come across which views this verse in a different light is that by Ahmad Ali. And then she quotes Ahmad Ali. Surely this translation is more in harmony with a common sense understanding of relationships. It still bothers me that 90% of all translations follow Yusuf Ali's route, and nobody has made a fuss. Does it bother no one's conscience? Does it bother no one's conscience? Does it ruffle no one's feathers? Should I give this authority more weight just because I like it better? That's not a very good criteria. The confusion regarding this verse and its surrounding controversy are prime examples of why it is so very important to understand the context in which verse, in which verses or a verse are revealed. The Quran is not always meant to be taken literally. It is an advanced book, quite capable of making its points symbolically or metaphorically. If there are direct, direct contradictions between two sources, such as here in the Quran and Hadith, then more research must be done to trace the authority of transmission and also the context of revelation. To exploit and abuse another woman, that's, I want to read to you just an introduction from an otherwise very long and scholarly paper. This is by Asim. I was 14 when I first heard of the concept. This is the concept of what your hands possess. I remember the scene vividly. There were about six of us seated around a rustic bench and table at Muslim youth camp. I was the youngest of the group. Having ambiti ambitiously joined several college women leisurely discussing interesting and controversial topics with one of the camp teachers during free time, someone mentioned, someone mentioned the word concubine. And I remember wondering what it meant. As the, as the conversation progressed, 
someone else mentioned that it is said that the Prophet himself had one. At this, tears began to form in the eyes of one of the young women, one I particularly liked and respected. And she earnestly asked the teacher if it was true. She received a reluctant but affirmative nod. Yes, some believe this to be true. This seemed too much for her, and she abruptly left the table for her cabin where she cried for some time. We all knew her tears were sincere and heartfelt, an honest response to a shocking revelation. Throughout this disturbing scene, my curiosity grew more and more intense. What is a concubine? I finally asked my mother, seated next to me, who had joined the discussion shortly after I had. My question had to be repeated several times. However, as my, as, as my mother busily tried to counter the, the direction of the discussion, isn't it true that there is a dispute on that point? And didn't he eventually marry her anyway? Finally, she turned to me and explained rather simply, it means a female slave honey. Honey, it means a female slave. Later that day, I learned that a concubine is not just a female slave, but a female slave who must allow her master to have sexual relations with her. That was what so disturbed the young lady at the table. And if I paraphrase, paraphrase and that is what so disturbs me ever since that day. And then it goes on to make a scholarly presentation of what does Ramalikat Imanukum mean. Who finds this is reflecting something in them? Do you find any reflection of yourself in this? Who? Men as well. Maybe you're not as bad as everyone thinks. Okay. Well, if... Um, to put it this way, if you're not bothered by it, you either have thought about it so long and resolved it in one fashion or another. Or, you have such a mindset to be incapable of thinking about it. And as tonight, and tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow, my job, and that's why ask, you go around and, and, and I'm, I'm my job is always to juggle brains and get them to think about issues. Uh, I rarely resolve anything and I rarely provide solutions. That doesn't mean that I don't have solutions, but my solutions are my own business. Um, you have your own autonomy. With that said, I'll leave this line of argument for tomorrow. Because I want to pick it up again, and it's going to be picked up again and again until I leave, inshallah. And let's ask an interesting question. <clears throat> was that, was these problems an issue of discourse in Islamic civilization? And by the way, I keep looking at the women because I'm sort of intentionally ignoring the men tonight. <laughs> Was it an issue of discourse in the Islamic civilization? <coughs> the position of women. How women are to be treated. What is their function? Yeah. 
Can you cite an example? An example of the discourse? An example of the discourse. Well, in, in, in the book, um, The Veil and the Narrow Leap by Fatima Renfri, um, I believe Om Sanama's point, point asked the Prophet, why are we not allowed to, to um, why? to, not to head, but to fight war. Okay. And that would point to me that at least one of the wives of the Prophet was, was constantly thinking, or that the wives in general were thinking, and therefore the women must have been thinking, or should have been thinking, or were thinking, that how are we to be treated if, if there, there are to be no Muslim slaves? Okay. I've had an example for Um Salah. I believe she asked the Prophet why it seems that the Quran is um, directed towards men and not women. And as a result of that, I believe the ayah was revealed. Surah Nisa? Yeah. So, she was questioning. Okay, and we can. Were there not also arguments um, after, um, after the death of the Prophet um, between Aisha and Abu Huraira on whether or not, um, on what interrupts man's prayer? with another woman passing in front of a man interrupts his prayer. Yeah, and, and what was Aisha's point about Abu Huraira? Um, I'm citing also from the day, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, her point about him was that he, she felt that he did not know the Prophet long enough and he cited far too many examples for someone who knew him for such a short period of time. So in other words, she, she disputed his, his authority. Right. Right? Okay. Why did Aisha, and here the, the, um, the Shiites might have, of course, a very particular point of view on this. I think I should, if I may interrupt, um, the Surah Nisa, as uh, uh, I, I think when uh, I read the Najul Balagha, and uh, especially the sermon to, not the sermon, the letter that Imam Ali wrote to his son, in which he particularly uh, talks about women and how they should be treated is not very much different from what uh, Rashida pointed out in her... Uh, there is actually... Extremely, uh, I, I completely agree with her sentiments here, and that those were the feelings that I had after reading that letter. That How can that work? Okay. How, how does this work? And in fact, those of you who haven't seen Nahj al-Balagha, everyone here knows what Nahj al-Balagha is? It's, it's, it's basically a compilation of the sayings and letters of Imam Ali. Those of you who have, haven't taken a look at it, take a look at it and especially read this part in which he addresses issues of women because it is quite interesting. But on the other side, why did Aisha, Ustalha and Zubair rebel? What did they want? Maawiyah wanted that. Perhaps didn't they simply just want power to make their ideas become the ones that govern the new Islamic society? And even perhaps, who is the leader of the group? Talha, Zubair, or Aisha? Aisha. 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 Aisha.
So by forming the alliance with the Taliban. How do you know that? What? How do you know that? Because she was the one who decided that where they would go, which families they would see, try to form alliances, Talan Zubair had their input also, but... She was a he or he was something. Okay, when the Khawarij rebelled, shortly after Imam Ali's death, who's leading them? Who's leading the rebellion? It was a woman. It was a woman. She's the one that went and she, she went to Baghdad? She's the one that eventually ended up in Baghdad, yeah. And she conquered, she conquered a, uh, a city and she led the prayer. And she, and she read the entire Surah Baqarah and Surah Nisa. <laughs> yes. Okay, go ahead. And I wasn't going to give the full story, but yeah. So that's basically true. She led the Khawarij and in fact went and conquered the territory and led prayer in that territory. I can't remember her name now because I knew someone was going to ask me her name. But <laughs> the best way to find it is just look in any book of history, the Khawarij shortly after Imam Ali. And she, she's there, I mean, both in English and Arabic, there's a lot about her. Jad, remember her name? Now, and in fact, I bring up this point because Imtiaz's point is, I don't think, is correct. Talha and Zubair supported Aisha, but they supported Aisha's bid for power. And it was Aisha that wanted and thought that she is entitled to it. Now, but the perception we have, and of course, re remember here, I mean, you are free agents, uh, you're not children, so you, you are free to accept or reject what I say or, or dump it in the garbage can when you leave or whatever. That's your right. Um, but the, I've, I've gotten used to, when I speak to Muslims, to a whole bunch of frenzy accompanying everything. And um, the best way to deal with the frenzy is just uh, ignore it. But the perception is, and even by people like Fatma Miranisi, is that there was some type of feminist discourse in the early period and then suddenly we have a whole period of non-discourse where there is nothing going on in the field. There's no discussion of, no controversy over this. Now, I had two options when I was invited here. Originally, I was sending to get certain manuscripts from Egypt and Damascus that related to this, but um, for many different circumstances, the, the project did fell through. So I chose another text to give you an example of what discourse did exist. This, by, this is by a man, and his name is Al-Jahaz. Anyone hear of Al-Jahaz before? He was a poet, a philosopher, a literary figure. And Jahaz is writing around the 5th century Hijra. So about the 11th century. And he is debating among his peers. Hmm? Yeah. He died... Fourth century. 
No, he died in the 300 something, that's 4th century. So in 10th, 10th, yeah? He died in 343, I think it's 43, yeah. Anyway, I didn't Xerox the uh, death date, it doesn't matter, he's fairly early. I mean, the point is that he's fairly early. Now, I'm going to read to you some things that, at least when I read, when I studied, was one of these very old sheikhs who was half, who couldn't tell the difference between a man and a woman. Uh, he was saying it with a complete, no reaction, but I was sitting there uh, churning in my seat. At the time, of course, I was like most men, uh, wanted to tell women their place. And I couldn't believe that this guy was sitting there telling me all this stuff. But I wanted an ijazah from him, so I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> so this is in a book he wrote. And in, he wrote several rasail. Rasail means uh, treaties on women. And in one of these treaties, treatises, yeah. Okay. I will skip over the Arabic. I don't think it's necessary. This is from his treatise called On Women. He says, We do not claim, we, he's referring to himself alone, we do not claim, nor does any rational person claim that women are superior to men or that men are superior to women, to women. They are neither a rank or two or more below them, nor are they a rank or two or more above them. But we have seen people that hold women in great contempt and deprive them of most of their rights. It is, it is a stark failure for man to be unable to give the rights of his father and paternal uncles without compromising the rights of his mother and his maternal uncles. For this, we have mentioned some of the attractive aspects of women, or attributes. If it, if it had not been that some people take pride in strength, endurance, and lack of desire for women so much so that they consider the strength of a man's love for his mother, wife, and children indicative of weakness, we would not have gone to the trouble of compiling what we have included in this treatise. So, he is saying the following argument. Now remember when is this being written? This is not some westernized liberal uh, Harvard or Yale graduate or Stanford graduate who's been corrupted by the West. This is Ujahs. This is as orthodox as you can get. We do not say, and no one in his rational mind would say that men are above women or that women are above men. Neither of them are a level or two or more below or above the other. But we have seen people disrespect them and deny them their rights. And it is a true shame that men cannot honor their fathers without depriving their mothers their rights. 
And it is so much so that we have seen people bragging about their strengths by saying that we do not love women and using their lack of love to their wife or to their mother or to their children as proof of their strengths. And this is why we compiled this book. Now, what is the book that Al-Jah has compiled? He basically starts by doing a systematic response to his opponents. In other words, Al-Jahiz has certain people in mind that he is responding to in his discussion. And he is debating with. And in his res systematic response to his opponents, he is trying to prove certain points to them. And he breaks down his arguments by items. So he says, Fasl, Fasl, Fasl. Point number seven. I skipped over seven of them. If, if I had, originally my plan was, because originally all of this was supposed to come out in a, in a long article, but Allah willed otherwise. Uh, I was planning to translate the whole article and publish it as an appendix, but that did not unfortunately happen. So I've asked uh, someone called uh, Yasef to translate passages of it, and it's unfortunate because the whole thing is worth reading. Point seven, skipping through one through seven, point seven. He says, in proof that the Arabs before Islam did not know the hijab. And here I should explain to you what the hijab is so uh, people won't frantically run outside and say Khalid is against the hijab. Hijab means isolation. That women, that, that Arabs before Islam did not know the isolation of women. He, he says, Men have always conversed with women in Jahiliyyah and Islam. And it was such, it was such, uh, the translation is not, okay, forget it. Men and women did not know the hijab before Islam. hijab before Islam. Stare at each other. However, they always gathered and conversed and socialized with each other. And they always celebrated together in social events. Everyone following? Okay. And consequently, a man who is addicted to 
the gatherings, social gatherings, in which there were women, was called izir. And this, and hence the word ziyara. Ziyara means to visit. And um, from that, was the fact that the awliya, the sheikhs, the respected ones, used to arrive with their criticize this as long as no sin is being committed. To the extent that and the situation continued so after Islam to the extent that Akhi um, Buthayna uh, this is one of the Sahaba considered it quite repulsive. And he went and complained to a husband of a woman called Jamil that his wife is always present in too many celebrations. And Jamil responded that it is none of your business. Anyway, so it goes on describing the same idea for a while. And men continued to converse with women before Islam and after Islam until the point in which the hijab, the isolation, was imposed, made mandatory upon the wives of the Prophet exclusively. <coughs> and not upon anyone else. And consequently, this is the reason Jamil wa Buthayna met and married and fell in love, or met, fell in love and married. And this is why Afra wa Urwa, two Sahabiyin, met and fell in love and married. Wa Kathir wa Azza, as well, met, fell in love and married. وقيس ولبنى وأسماء ومرقش وعبد الله بن عجلان وهند. So all of these could not have possibly met and fell in love and married if the hijab was imposed. Now again, I am emphasizing for this little thing here. I am reading from Mujahiz رسالة القيان. Check it yourself. definition of hijab, is this temporal or is this a shifting definition? A shifting definition. We'll get into the shifting definitions tomorrow. But today I uh, I'll limit it um, to He goes on. And we all know that Imam al-Hasan in his time was the best person. By the way, Rahiz was a Sunni. He's not a Shiite. Imam al-Hasan in his time was the best person alive. And if conversing with women and looking at them was forbidden and shameful, he would not have done it. Al-Munzir ibn Zubair would not have allowed it, and Abdullah ibn Zubair would not have advised it. These are, these are not leaving in protest. <laughs> Okay. 
Now, um, tom tomorrow, you know, it's a full day thing. Right, okay. What time do we finish for? Okay, now, um, I wait till you leave. Leave and then I'll embarrass you in your absence. It'll be on tape, you can hear it later. Yeah. Uh, this and and those present tell people that this was an exceptional session outside the retreat. Tomorrow, leaving and coming in late is not allowed. Anyone who cannot come on time should not come, and anyone who has to leave early should not come. Unless you authorize it with me. <laughs> okay, unless I give you an ijazah. And basically, I want to hear a very good excuse why you have to leave early. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not a nice fellow, as everyone knows. And I put a lot of energy and effort in what I teach. And at the least, I can expect is to be somewhat reciprocated. So keep that in mind. If two of you show up tomorrow, I'll teach them. Uh, numbers don't matter to me. Okay. And we all know that Al-Hasan in his time was the best person alive. And if conversing with women and looking at them was forbidden and shameful, he would not have done it. Because Al-Hasan did. And Al-Munzir ibn Zubair, one of the Sahaba, would not have allowed it. And he did. And Abdullah ibn Zubair would not have advised it. Advised it. Advised it. And he did. Let's look at the Arabic. وَلَمْ يُشِرْ بِهِ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ إِبْنُ زُبَيْرِ What does يُشِرْ بِهِ mean? Any Arabic experts here? Come on. Jihad. وَلَمْ يُشِرْ بِهِ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ يُشِرْ يُشِرْ يَأْشِينْ رَأْ The point Yushir from Ishara. So Abdullah bin Zubair would not have literally advised it. Literally advised it. Okay. Then he says, and know that Al Hashawiyya, who's the Hashawiyya? Okay, wait a minute. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait until you get done with this. Huh? No, no. That's uh, take your time. They're human. You know, they're humans too. Huh? And then he says, Al Hashawiya. Anyone know who Al Hashawiya was? Hashawiya was an Islamic sect that became extinct. They're very, very much like, um, if you would say, the Shia or the Sunnah or whatever, but they, they, they were a sect that became extinct. And he says, Al-Hashawiyya were definitely incorrect in forbidding looking at women. Now, I don't know if this is hitting you as in the same way it is impacting upon me or the way it impacted upon me 
when I read it the first time when I was 15 years old. At the time, I thought the Sheikh was making it up. And, uh, and even after I memorized it and passed the exam on it, I still thought that someone must have made it up. Because it sounded too contemporary. It just doesn't work that way. Then he says to the Hajawiyyah, this hadith and the preceding, he, he quotes several hadith, this hadith and the preceding discussion nullify what the Hashawiyah contend that both the first and subsequent looks are forbidden. For there can be no conversation without countless looks between men and women. And unless what they refer to as a forbidden look is to look at hair or the body and what is, his, is hidden by clothes, clothes, which may only be seen by the husband, the guardian or the close relative, the mahram. So, what he's saying is that what they say, the Hajawiyah's argument, that the first and the subsequent looks are haram, cannot be right because there cannot be a conversation without a first and a second look. Unless what they're talking about is looking at places where you should not be looking. In other words, looking at parts of the body that are concealed by clothes. And the reason they're concealed by clothes is you're not supposed to be looking at them. It's a logical, self-evident argument. He goes on. And no, no, this is like the Arabic old style, and no, and be on, on notice and things like that. And know that Ash-Shabi, Shabi is a famous jurist of his time, was a scholar of the people of Iraq and the most famous scholar in Iraq and the most knowledgeable among the scholars of Iraq. And if looking at women was forbidden, he would not have allowed it and would have not taken the liberty of looking at women in his classes. Proof, I have to oh, keep checking to make sure that... Uh, that the translation is right. Proof that looking at any woman is not forbidden is that women that, that are too old for marriage can be seen by men without putting on their outer garments. It's a radical idea, but it was done in the medieval time. If it were forbidden when she was young, it would not be allowed now that she is old. Rather, it is simply a matter where the extremists have exceeded the extremists, have exceeded the limits of recommended jealousy to the realm of bad manners <laughs> and stupidity until it became with them like a mandatory truth. Now let me say the Arabic for... How many of you know Arabic? L let me first find out. Define no. Yeah. Like how many of you can sort of even re recognize that yes, this is more or less of what it's saying? Vaguely. 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 Like, e well, okay, fine, yeah. I think it's very important because it's, it, it, the English is not believable as the Arabic is. You hear it in English, you don't, you cannot, and, and anyway, since this is being recorded, I think that's uh, useful. Uh, here. That the old woman, I'll, I have to, to, to backtrack again and then read the Arabic relevant parts. That the old woman appears to men Without ihtisham. What is ihtisham? Ihtashimi. Without being wearing her modest clothes. And if it was haram 
for the young woman to appear before men, it would have also been haram for the old woman. وَلَكِنَّهُ أَمْرُ أَفْرَطَ فِيهِ الْمُتَعَدُّونَ حَدَّ الْغِيرَةِ إِلَى سُوءِ الْخُلْقِ وَضِيقِ الْفِطَنِ فَصَارَ عِنْدَهُمْ كَالْحَقِّ الْوَاجِبِ So, rather it is simply a matter, المُتَعَدُّونَ means those who are unfair or unjust, the extremists, have exceeded the limits of proper jealousy to the realm of simply bad manners. Su'al khulq means bad manners. Wadiqil fitan means and stupidity. And in other words, they're stupid. And consequently, they have, they have, it, it, this stupidity has become as if it is a mandatory truth. Now, let's stay with Jahis for a little bit more because he's an interesting fellow. I wish if the circumstances that didn't happen to me, what I was planning to do is bring two manuscripts, one from Cairo and one from Damascus, saying the same thing. One was from the 5th century Hijra and the other from the 7th century Hijra, but by women jurists, making the same type of argument. But because they're not published, you have to get the microfilm and getting the microfilm from Damascus or Egypt is exactly... Do you have the saying, getting the milk of the bird? In, Egypt, in Arabic, you say... Get it. Yeah, it's like an impossibility. Anyway, it's mean... I mean, you have to work for about six months before they'll send you a microfilm. And I was planning to get the microfilm and then print it out from the manuscripts and share it with you, but... Um, I, I couldn't, circumstances happened and, and um, but I, inshallah it will happen and I, I will publish it. So Jahiz goes on to say, it is essential, where's Kamal? Oh, one of the dear crown, my God, traitors everywhere. <laughs> it is essential that now no one is forbidden to look at flowers. I'm, I skipped several paragraphs. I mean, look how much I've skipped all of this. So I, I, and here is what I'm translating. So I can't really show, share with you the, the real joy of this text as it should be. It is essential that no one is forbidden to look at flowers and plants and to walk around in the greenery and to breathe in, and to breathe in the air. All of this is allowed unless he or she, he should say, extends his or her hands towards it. In other words, you can walk around, you can smell the flowers, but don't start plucking them. If you didn't know, it's not Islamic to kill flowers just for the purpose of killing flowers. But anyway, that's, that's environmental law, that's something else. <laughs> but if he touches as much as a single seed without paying its due, then he has committed something that is not allowed and he has eaten out of what is forbidden. So it is when conversing with female was female, well, he, he, he translates it as female entertainers, which... Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it is with conversing with women, joking with them, shaking their hands, and looking at them. فَلَا بُدْ مِمَّا... 
فإذا مد يدا إلى مثقال حبة من خردل بغير حقها فعل ما لا ما لا يحل. السؤال. Now let's stay with this 